I mean, you know, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities. You know, I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. You know, but I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We're recording this on the morning of Friday the 24th of November. My name is Alice Workman and I'm sitting in Parliament House and in Sydney I'm joined by Lane Sainty. Lane, hello. Alice, hello. How are you? Oh, Lane, we've, we've gone and done it again. We've, we've lost another one. Another one. We've lost another coach of the Socceroos, I mean. I mean, come on. Lane, Ange Postacoglu is gone, despite getting the boys into the World Cup. I mean, my heart goes out to Mike and the boys, Lane. I know. When will the madness end, Alice? When will it end? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. We've lost another Senator, Lane. It's equally as ridiculous as losing Ange. We have. Sky Kokoschke Moore from the Nick Xenophon team. Gone. I know. Another one. It's gone. number nine, Alice. It is getting... I mean, it's getting quite commonplace at this point. Senator Kokoschke Moore's departure didn't even make the front pages of the Sydney papers or the Australian, <laughs> which is a bit sad, really. Yeah, we're losing one a week. We lost Jackie Lambie the, yeah. the previous week. Who did Jackie Lambie barely got a week? Is already doing the rounds on the TV saying, "Well, I'll be back. Don't worry." I've like she's re, she's relaunched her campaign. She's got new hats. She's got new uh, yeah. shirt. She's got a new logo. She's got a new kind of really creepy Photoshop picture of herself. Uh, she's had a makeover. The eyebrows are different. She was on the project. She was on seven thirty. Mm-hmm. She's saying, "I'm back, guys, and I'm going to get the yeah. balance of power in the Tasmanian Parliament." Okay, mate. We'll see how the the Jackie Lambie network goes. It's all, it's all happening. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've got. Heaps to get through. In a few minutes, we'll chat to Amy Ramikis, the Guardian's political reporter up in Queensland, ahead of this weekend's election showdown. Queensland decides, um, is how Sky News are describing it. Between, <laughs> Queensland are deciding lane between Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Labor Premier, and Tim Nichols, the LNP leader, and... In one nation's Pauline Hansen. It's a um it's a big decision. It is a big decision, Alice. But first, let's kick off with this week's Fast Five. And number one is Parliament is cancelled. Well, kind of. So, Alice, the big news this week was that Malcolm Turnbull has cancelled next week's lower house, so the House of Reps, apparently so the Senate can focus on marriage equality. So the Senate will sit and debate and most likely pass marriage equality next week. There's The bill has a kind of deadline on it that it has to pass the Senate by the end of next week. But the House of Reps, despite having more than 50 bills they could be debating and voting on, they're going on a break. Is this the first government to call a stop work on themselves? Has Malcolm Turnbull gone on strike, hauling himself, <laughs> hauling himself up in his Harborside mansion? Why is Parliament not sitting? Mm. Well, Alice, you can't have a spill if you don't have a party room for all the people who, who cannot see me. I am looking um, suspicious and tapping the side of my head as I say this. <laughs> also... Like the meme. It's like the meme yeah, of the yeah. guy who is like raising his eyebrows yeah, and tapping yeah. his head. Mm. Yeah. So have that, Im- have that image in your mind. Smart. And you can't refer people to the high court if parliament isn't sitting. Mm. And 
people can't cross the floor on the Banking Royal Commission if you don't debate legislation. So there's all that going on. Here's the Herald Sun's James Campbell. You know, the, if you've scheduled Parliament, you turn up for Parliament. That's the thing. I mean, Gillard managed to endure three-plus years of minority government hell, and she never cancelled the Parliament. It looks weak, it looks cowardly, it looks like he's running away, and moreover, it looks like he's more concerned about avoiding an ugly party room meeting, uh, I suspect, than what's going to happen in the House of Reps. So, yeah, big fail. No, no two ways about it. So, no reps next week. But... The front bench of the ALP and Greens MP Adam Bant and independent Bob Catter say they're going to turn up anyway. And Catter said that he'll hold a parliamentary session on the grass. He doesn't care if it's not sitting in the House. So I had a look at the Libs lower house roster this week and they're planning to add an extra week in December. So very suspicious timing over all this. It is worth noting, Alice, most importantly, of course, that a whole week's worth of Christmas parties have had to be moved. So Devo. <laughs> And that's number two. Out, outrageous. How dare, how dare they it have is to outrageous. move their, the overwhelming supply of booze being brought into this building for Christmas parties. All right, number two I know, is... I mean, people organise Christmas parties. They they go out of their way and now it's just all shifted. Yeah, they go out of their way to Photoshop themselves as like an elf or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all really tragic. Okay, number <laughs> <Yeah>. two. <laughs> Another one bites the citizenship dust. That's right. Nick Xenophon, Team South Australian Senator, Sky Kokochki-Moore is number nine. She's the ninth politician to resign from parliament over the dual citizen fiasco. Now, Sky Kokoschke-Moore was born in Darwin in 1985. Her father was born in Adelaide, but this all revolves around her mother, who was born in Singapore in 1957 to British parents. So she was born in Singapore before independence. Today I have received confirmation that I am a dual citizen as I have inherited British citizenship from my mother. I'm heartbroken by this news. My mother was born in Singapore in 1957 to British parents. She migrated to Australia with her family in 1970. I was born in Darwin in 1985. My father and both of his parents were born in South Australia. Usually where a parent is born outside of the UK, they are unable to pass their citizenship onto their children, where those children are also born outside of the UK. It was my understanding for my entire life that I was not eligible for British citizenship due to that rule. In fact, as a 12-year-old while I was living in Oman, my father made inquiries with the British Embassy there to determine whether I was eligible for a British passport. We were advised that I was not eligible for a passport because I was not eligible for British citizenship. We had no reason to doubt that this advice was incorrect. Based on this advice, I am resigning from the Senate today and will be requesting that my matter be referred to the High Court when the Senate sits next week. So Sky Kokoschke's reasoning is that she only double-checked because of the order that's not an audit that all politicians are required to do to produce uh, documents showing where they were born and where their parents are born and any citizenships they've ever held. So it was only because of this that she double-checked because based on previous advice, she thought that she wasn't a jewel, which is pretty much like a lot of the cases coming up now seems to be we had been given advice that I wasn't a jewel. That's why I didn't double check. Oh, well, we checked at the time I was given advice and then we kind of all let it go. So Kokoschke Moore quit uh, the Senate on Wednesday, which means that half 
of the Xenophon team members elected at the last election have now gone. So Sky Kokoshki Moore is gone and Nick Xenophon is gone. We've only got Sterling Griff and Rebecca Sharkey left. But there is question marks over Rebecca Sharkey. She's the lower house Xenophon MP for the seat of Mayo in Adelaide in South Australia. The AEC, the Electoral Commission, put out an email this week calling for staff to run a by-election in her seat, even though she actually hasn't resigned or been referred to the High Court yet over her British citizenship. But she has admitted that her UK citizenship was renounced after nominations closed, so after the election date. So going by what the High Court has done previously with other people, she could be Gonski too. So who will be Sky Kokoschke's more replacement? This lane is quite interesting. Mm. Sky said that she's not leaving politics. She'll be back. She won't run for the state, but she will run uh, the federal next federal election for the Senate again. But so the High Court, of course, are going to decide how to replace Sky Kokoschke Moore, most likely a recount. So it could be the next person on the Nick Xenophon ticket. But who is the next person on the Xenophon ticket? It's a guy called Tim Storer, who we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who issued the challenge over replacing Nick Xenophon in the Senate. Now, in case you don't remember... Xenophon resigned after the High Court found that he he was eligible to sit in Parliament, but he resigned anyway. Yep. So he resigned. So instead of the next person on the ticket getting his seat, the party was allowed to pick. And so they picked Nick's right-hand man, a guy called Rex Patrick. Now, Tim Story wasn't happy about that, so he challenged them doing it, but then he lost and then he quit the party because he lost the challenge. So because right. he's quit the party, does that mean he still gets the seat? Even though he was a party <laughs> member... Last year when, when he was on the ticket and he ran for the election, yep. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to find out. And, Lane, if we've learned anything, we can't predict the High Court. So there's yep. no point trying. What is number three? No point trying at all. Number three, Alice, is an update from Manus Island. So it's Friday morning when we're recording this. Yesterday, a number of asylum seekers were detained on Manus Island on on Thursday morning as police tried to clear the closed immigration detention centre. Now, of course, hundreds of men have remained in the centre since it was closed without food, water and electricity. They're refusing to move to the new accommodation the Australian government has built over fears for their safety. On Thursday... Papua New Guinea police entered the facility in an attempt to remove the men and asylum seekers said that the police smashed property and confiscated phones. The situation led to about 40 men being detained by PNG police, including Iranian refugee and journalist Beirouz Bouchani. Bouchani later tweeted that he had been handcuffed for two hours and the police said to him, you are reporting against us, implying that they had arrested him because he's a journalist and has been providing information out of the centre. Police said he was not arrested but removed because he was influencing the other men not to leave the centre. While the men were being taken away and detained by police, the remaining men sat on the ground in protest and refused to be removed. Around 50 people were put on buses and taken to the new accommodation. One witness saw a man shout help out the windows as they drove off. The Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has called for the remaining men to leave peacefully. He said yesterday, they think this is some way they can pressure the Australian government to let them come to Australia. We will not be pressured, he said. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton has said it's disgraceful that people are still in the centre. He said, it is like the tenant that won't move out of the house when you've built a new house for them to move into. Dutton said that they gave the men six months' notice 
and that taxpayers have paid $10 million to build new facilities. The Australian Federal Police were providing assistance on Manus, but they actually weren't there when the men went in. Labor has called on the government to accept New Zealand's offer to take 150 refugees, and refugee advocates are fearing the worst. They say the conditions in the centre are so bad and that it is very possible that somebody could die in the coming days. So the situation on Manus is ongoing, it's it's very tense, and yeah, definitely keep watching what happens here. Alice, what's number four? Number four is it's been a long time since John Alexander told some crude jokes. We published a story this week, uh, which was a video of the former Liberal member, now Liberal candidate again for Benelong, John Alexander, telling a few off-coloured jokes. One of them involved rape. One of them involved a reference to OJ Simpson and that murdering wives and stuff is okay. The video was filmed at a rap party for the first season of the TV show Gladiators, which Alexander was a referee on. So it was 1995 and it was uploaded to YouTube six years ago. Here's a, um, a bit of the joke. A black guy in Chicago and he's uh, witnessed a, a rape and he's been called into the, the court. No, 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 this is not murdering wives and stuff. That's, that's all right. So at the time it was recorded, he was in his 40s. Uh, the video was shot by one of the Gladiators contestants. And I spoke to the guy who filmed it and he said he sent it to John Alexander but got no response. Um, John Alexander said when he saw the video, he was horrified with his language and that the jokes were crude and he's apologised and he said, He's apologised not just for what he said, but his judgment and the inappropriateness of the jokes. Um, here's what he said uh, this week after seeing the video again after uh, 20 years. Uh, we were having a rap party at the end of filming, and uh, it was in, uh, in at that event. The jokes seem quite well rehearsed. Were these jokes that you've told before? Uh, look, uh, the jokes... Uh, were crude. Uh, when I saw them this morning, uh, I was horrified at uh, my language, and uh, and yeah, and I apologise uh, for those for those language uh, for the language and for the jokes. It's interesting to note that the PM was actually the first person that came out and spoke about this. Um, so the Prime Minister mm. said that um, you know John Alexander did what he should have done, which is an unreserved apology. Statements like that, whether they're intended as jokes or not, are completely and utterly unacceptable. There's no place for joking about violence against women. And noted that not all disrespect of women ends up in violence against women, but that's where all violence against women begins. So you kind of need to, yeah. to to reflect on that. Um, Labor leader Bill Shorten said the comments were crass, they were wrong, they were stupid, and the apology is 22 years too late. But when John Alexander finally came out on Thursday afternoon, he said, well, I, you know, he understands that the jokes were offensive and there's no doubt that it will be damaging and there'll be some people who will find it difficult to accept his apologies, apologies and forgive him. But he says he's grown as a person over the last 20 years since it was filmed. But, I mean, it is worth noting the video was filmed when he was – he was in his 40s when this was filmed. He wasn't, in, yeah. he wasn't a teenager. He wasn't in his 20s drunk at university. He was in his 40s. So it may – you know, people may say, well, it was 20 years ago, but – I think that that's kind of worth considering as well. So so why do we really care about this? Well, I, the Benelong's having a by-election. You know, Benelong was once considered to be a safe Labor seat. It, it had only been won once by Labor. That was in 2007 by uh, Maxine McHugh uh, during the Kevin 07 years. Uh, and there, there's been a poll published this week that in the Saturday Telegraph that it's now 50-50 in Benelong between John Alexander and Christina Keneally. It's neck and neck. And it's looking more and more likely to be a vote on the future of the Turnbull government because if they lose it, they lose their one-seat majority. Uh, and then the race is on to see who will hold minority government. Um, so, yeah, so 
I think especially in the wake of what's happened in the US, I think it's extremely important to point these things out when they come to light and to uh, shine a light on them because like the Prime Minister said, you know, comments like these don't always end up in violence, but, you know, violence always comes from somewhere and and it's this kind of misogynist attitude and, and these kind of jokes that, that could potentially lead to, to something much, much worse happening. So that was the main thing to happen in Benelong this week. Other than a very, very weird photo that John Alexander um, tweeted and put on his Facebook of him doing phone banking. So phone banking is when you get a whole bunch of people in a room and you kind of you call around the electorate and, and get people to vote and tell people to vote for you. But they took this photo, but none of the phones were plugged in. Lane, <laughs> none of the phones were plugged in. It was that was the most bizarre photo. I mean, why? And then they they later amended the caption on Facebook to make sure it said, you know, the phones we were actually using were plugged in. Why would they unplug the phones to take I, a photo? I don't it know. It makes no sense to me how that photo came about. It's so funny. What's uh, number five? Number five is that voluntary euthanasia laws have passed Victoria's upper house after a 28-hour marathon sitting. Now, this is a historic bill. If it does pass, it, mean, it needs to go back to the lower house before it does. It means Victoria will become the first state in the country to legalise assisted dying for the terminally ill. Now, it was a conscience vote for all MPs and some wept as they cast their vote. In the end, it passed 22 to 18 votes with 11 government MPs supporting the bill and four Liberals, five Greens and two Independents. Because amendments were made to the bill, it now must go back to the lower house for ratification before it becomes law, which shouldn't be a problem because last time it passed through the lower house, it had 47 to 37 support. So how will it work? Patients must be over the age of 18, of sound mind, so okay to make decisions, and have lived in Victoria for at least 12 months. Two doctors will have to sign off on the process and the patient will have to make two formal requests as well as a written statement. Patients must have a diagnosis that they are suffering from an incurable disease, are suffering intolerable pain and only have six months left to live. Except in some cases for people with motor neurone disease and multiple sclerosis, it can be 12 months to live. The doctor will prescribe the substance and then if they are able, the patient will have to administer the lethal dose to themselves. So doctors will have the right to refuse to provide information, to prescribe or to administer an assisted dying substance if they are conscientious objectors. It won't be available until 2019 and it's estimated about 150 people a year would ask for a doctor-assisted death. So that's number five. That's the Fast Five done. And now it's time for... The controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage. Perhaps we should rename this segment the same-sex marriage corner or something (laughs) because the postal survey is actually over now. (laughs) We know that Australia voted yes. And now the big question is, what happens next? It's all about the bill, of course. As we said in last week's podcast, there's a bill in the Senate being debated. It's the bill written by Senator Dean Smith and four other Liberal lower house MPs. And it's now become a cross-party bill with people from Labor and the Greens and the crossbench throwing support behind it. Now, Alice, you won't believe me when I say this, but it turns out people aren't just happy to legalise same-sex marriage by changing the words a man and a woman to two people in the Marriage Act. What? No, really? Yeah, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. <laughs> so at, at the debate at the moment, 
It's all about exemptions to the marriage law for people who disagree, which are variously called protections or called a right to discriminate, depending on which side of the debate you sit on. So just to to quickly run through Senator Smith's bill, it hews very closely to the Marriage Act itself. So it would continue the right of religious ministers to say no to any couple that they don't want to marry. It would create a new category of religious celebrant, and that would include ministers of non-recognised religious denominations. And it would also they would also have a three month grandfather clause for current civil celebrants with religious beliefs about marriage to move into this new category. But all future civil celebrants won't be able to move into that category. And the bill would also exempt religious bodies such as churches or religious schools, but not, say, you know, a commercial florist who uh, happens to be a Christian. It would just be those churches, religious schools and so on from providing services to any wedding that goes against its religious beliefs. But, Alice, the bill does not go anywhere near far enough for conservative opponents of same-sex marriage or extremely libertarian supporters of same-sex marriage who think more people should be able to opt out of serving same-sex weddings and even out of other areas of life in which same-sex marriage might be uh, mentioned or, or even just vaguely referred to. So in the Senate next week, expect to see a lot of amendments to the Smith bill to make those exemptions more expansive. We know that we'll have an amendment from George Brandis to allow conscientious exemptions to civil celebrants. That would give any kind of person registered as a, as a state official to look over a marriage they would be able to refuse based on any anti-same-sex marriage view that they had. Um, we will also likely see an amendment from Brandis to insert some of the language from the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which he says is purely to reassure no voters and has no actual effect on the right of same-sex couples to marry. Um, from the conservative right, there will almost definitely be an attempt to amend the bill to include a clause about parents and school education, giving them the right to pull their kids out of class if it mentions, uh, I, I suppose, you know, ostensibly same-sex marriage, but also perhaps if it mentions LGBTI people or, or relationships. There will also likely be an attempt to introduce a no-detriment clause, which would make, uh, it would basically make disagreeing with same-sex marriage kind of a protected attribute under law so you couldn't uh, suffer any kind of detriment for your anti-same-sex marriage views. There are a lot of things we might see, Alice. Lane, I have a question. Mm -hmm. So some people want to expand it so that more people are allowed to opt out of of serving same-sex weddings or just same-sex people. Well, that kind of depends how you approach the question. And I think this is a really like, fundamental... Like, for example, if you're a therapist, yeah. like what, a, like mm-hmm. a lot of married couples go to therapy, right? Would you yeah. be able to reject same-sex couples who want therapy? Or like, how about same-sex couples who want to go to a psychic to well, like see whether they should get married or not? <laughs> That's a really complicated question. I suppose the the short answer, and this probably isn't going to be that short, but this is a really fundamental disagreement on whether refusing to participate in a same-sex wedding is the same as refusing to serve gay people. A lot of people say it is, uh, and a lot of people say that it's not. The therapist-psychic question is interesting because one of the things that was written into the Patterson bill and that I think we should expect to to see at least brought up um, in the parliament is this idea that services, you should be able to deny services for purposes kind of connected to a wedding, to the ceremony. So, yeah, so taxi whether, drivers taking people 
to the wedding. Yeah, and I think I think therapists for for marriage counseling counseling specifically would probably fall in into a grey area of you know it is kind of connected to to same sex marriage and to a same sex wedding, but on the other hand, it's not. <laughs> and and you know your view on that will depend on on your view on this particular issue. And some people say that you know refusing service to a same sex wedding at all, no matter how directly connected you are to the wedding, as you know as long as you're not the actual celebrant or minister presiding over the wedding, they say that that is akin to just denying service to gay people. So it's really complicated. I think the debate in the Senate next week is going to be really interesting and probably in a lot of ways hard to follow. Um, there'll also <laughs> likely be some amendments from the Greens. I'm just giving a bit of a <laughs> giving myself a free pass here for all the tweets that I'll send, which are like, I'm just trying to figure this out, guys. Um, there will also probably be some amend- amendments from the Greens to try and lessen the exemptions in the Smith Bill. But, Alice, all of this has kind of created a bit of a a, a brouhaha, a brouhaha? Brouhaha. A brouhaha. I've said this incorrectly before, haven't I? Oh, brouhaha. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Sounds like you've the- got some suggestive eyebrows. <laughs> I always have suggestive eyebrows. Anyway, anyway, the government is up in arms in this in this um, brouhaha about what will be in the bill and when is the right time to deal with all of this. So some people say that it must be done as part of the marriage bill and others in the government say it should be dealt with as part of a wider issue of religious freedom protection in Australia that goes beyond marriage. So... Trying to kind of hose this down, the government has appointed former Attorney General Philip Ruddock to chair an inquiry into religious you mean freedom. Mayor of Hornsby, Philip Ruddock. I do mean Mayor of Hornsby, Philip Ruddock. Here he the is. Fr- the front page of the paper the other day said, um, "Yeah, he stopped the boats. Now he's stopping the cars." And he was angry at people from the Central <laughs> Coast parking in Hornsby. It's a very Sydney conversation. I just thought it was very Trumpian. Um, okay, so here's Ruddick. Quite frankly, I don't prescriptively think of it in those terms, but I suspect it was shortly after. Okay, so what do you think are the unintended consequences that might happen with this change in law? Look, I mean, it's not so much unintended consequences, I suspect. It's a question of looking at and reassuring people that their judgement about their faith is something that won't be interfered with by the way in which the law is amended. Um, And uh, I think religious freedom is part and parcel of the Australia that we know and understand. We we recognise that under our constitution there's no established church. Now, Alice, this move from the government is funny for a number of reasons. One, it is marriage equality that has sparked this inquiry, and Ruddick was actually the man who, as Attorney General, headed up the effort in 2004 to write the ban on same-sex marriage into legislation. And the second and kind of lesser pointed out funny aspect of this is that there's already an inquiry into religious freedom in Australia. It was set up in November 2016. It's been running all year and it's chaired by David Fawcett. But clearly that's not enough for the government for for reasons unknown. They've said, well, you know, this ongoing inquiry is not good enough. So they've started this new one. So we're going to have two inquiries into religious freedom in Australia. But Alice, as quite often happens, 
It did not quell the concerns of conservatives who say this Ruddock inquiry is all very well and good, but it won't change their efforts to move amendments to the Smith marriage bill that provide more exemptions for people who don't agree with same-sex marriage. This will all go down in Parliament over the next few weeks. The bill has to pass the Senate by the end of next week, and then it goes to the House. We don't know how long it will take to pass the House. But Turnbull has made it very clear that marriage will be done by Christmas. And hopefully, Lane, it's done before you go on your holiday to Korea. Yeah, I'm very anxious at the moment. December 16 is my flight to Korea with with a bunch of mates. So please pass. Please pass the bill by then so I can go on holiday. That would be very nice. That's my plea to the parliament. Um, Anyway, Alice, that's the postal survey update for the week. Well, Lane, another weekend, another election. Last weekend, the Greens won the Victorian state by-election of Northcote. Lydia Thorpe is now the first female Indigenous woman elected to Victorian Parliament. And now this week, it is Queensland's turn. That's right, Alice. It is Labor's one-term Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, versus the LNP's Tim Nichols. But the question on everyone's lips... How many seats will Pauline Hanson's One Nation nab in Queensland? I spoke to The Guardian's political reporter, Amy Ramikas, who is on the ground following the Premier and the opposition leader around the state as they make their last minute pitch to voters. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. To start off with, for our non-Queensland listeners, we'll just go with the current state of play. Can you tell us who the polls are predicting will win government on Saturday night? Yeah, that's really interesting because the polls are predicting at the moment that it's a dead heat pretty much between the LNP and Labor. And that's because for the first time in a really long time in Queensland political history, about two decades, the last time that One Nation was a political force in this country, it's a a three-horse race. So the major parties cannot work out which way preferences will go. Mm -hmm. And preferences, again, are a big problem for this election because before Queensland used to be just vote one, they've changed it to compulsory preferential voting, which means that both major parties are running around a couple of days before the election kind of going, we don't know who's going to win this. (laughs) Okay, so it's kind of completely, it's anyone's game at this point. Absolutely. But then again, like it, the, the situation here is so weird that at the moment One Nation are saying we're going to be the balance of power and they probably will be. But I also wouldn't be surprised if one of the major parties romped it in by getting, you know, they need 47 seats for victory. I wouldn't be surprised at this stage if one of them gets like 51 seats. It's just completely uncertain. Okay, so we will talk about One Nation in a second, but before we go to that, it has been a quick four-week campaign. What are the issues that have been dominating? Uh, Energy has been dominating, uh, which is not surprising Mm because it's dominating the federal sphere. Cost of living is another big issue. But, I mean, mostly this has been a pretty small target campaign. So both Labor and the LNP, it's it's one party in Queensland, not a coalition. Both of them have been basically going like we'll give – free swimming lessons to your kids and we'll freeze freeze your car rego and you know we're going to build you nature tracks like it's not giant infrastructure promises that they're making here it's small target 
let's play nice. Everybody, you know, remember that you like us and let's see how we go from there. And you've been on the road with politicians. What are some of the places that you've been to on the buses and has anything, I suppose, particularly interesting been happening out on the road? Well, um, I've been all over Queensland from, like, from far north Queensland. So I've been to Cairns a couple of times, Townsville, been to Toowoomba, been up west to Charleville and to Emerald. Spent a lot of time in the southeast, which is, you know, Brisbane, Sunshine Coast. We'll be heading to the Gold Coast. Been to Bundaberg, been to Maryborough. It's Queensland is a really interesting political space because mm-hmm. unlike New South Wales or Victoria, more than 50% of the population actually lives outside of the southeast. So it means that you've got political parties who have to make promises that appeal to the southeast, which are very similar to your Sydney and, and Melbourne voters, particularly in, in Brisbane. So they want sort of like, you know, more green policies, more transparencies, moving moving away from coal, that sort of thing. Yeah. You've got to appeal to them. But then you have to appeal to another 50% of the population who think that coal is going to be what saves their economy. And some of those, especially in North Queensland and in Western Queensland, have double-digit youth unemployment. So, of course, they want things like coal mines and they want the uh, Adani train line to go ahead because they think that that's going to open up an entire entirely new economic route. It's just been really interesting watching city politicians try to appeal to regional voters and not always hitting that mark. Can you talk a bit about the the role Adani has played in the campaign and any other issues on, on which you think that they're maybe not hitting that mark? Well, so Adani is just, it's overshadowed this entire campaign. Mm-hmm. In the first week, um, Labor, Labor's leader, Anastasia Palaszczuk, who's the current Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk had a horror start to her campaign. She was followed everywhere by anti-Adani protesters. Uh, there was a couple of times where her security uh, and her, her own team had to, like, crash tackle people off the stage because they were just kind of, you know, hijacking all of her events. Then at the end of that first week, uh, she said she learned of a plan from her political opponents to smear her and uh, because her partner, a guy called Sean Drabs, he works for PricewaterhouseCoopers, who have been developing the loan application for Adani. So Adani wants a billion dollars to build a rail line to get from the Galilee Basin to the Gladstone Port. Mm-hmm. So her partner was basically helping them, you know, put together that loan Massive conflict of interest, obviously, when you're the Premier of the state that's going to be facilitating that loan. So she's gone, you know what, no, Queensland will veto that loan, which is a big problem for Adani because the NAIF can't actually, you know, they, they, they need the state's approval. She said that you're not going to get it. So that kind of solved the Adani problem a little bit for Palaszczuk because it meant that she was no longer being followed around by protesters. Mm-hmm. But she's kind of been caught in this quagmire now of whether she will be directly giving any taxpayer funds to it. And there's a bunch of Brisbane seats who are very, very against Adani and coal mines and, and all of that, who are looking towards the Greens, who are completely against the mine. But then you go north of you know, Gympie, which is only a couple of hours outside of Brisbane, and people really, really want it. So she's caught in this kind of like really tough situation where she's trying to tell people that they'll still get the mine. They're just not going to get, you know, the taxpayer funds that are going to go towards. 
whereas the LNP are still supporting the taxpayer loan uh, for the rail line, but they will probably end up having to govern with One Nation, who have made it a non-negotiable condition that Queensland owns the train line, that it's not given to Adani as a loan that Queensland actually owns the asset, which is not LNP policy. So Adani has managed to completely overshadow any other sort of big issue that has been happening in Queensland over these four weeks. And Adani themselves have only released one statement where they've kind of gone, oh, we don't want to be a problem for the Queensland election. We would quite like to have the train line loan uh, and also, you know, so please like us. So all of this chat has been going on about Adani for the whole time and Adani has just remained pretty, pretty quiet throughout. Yeah, because I don't think it's really a winnable situation for mm. Adani. They, I don't think they're particularly enjoying the attention. Uh, and I definitely know that, you know, the major parties are also not enjoying. You know, I mean, the Premier was in uh, on at Australia Zoo today, standing next to koalas and was being hammered over Adani and what, what you know, taxpayer funds would go to council projects like roads and things. And could she rule that out? It's just something that has just overshadowed everything. They can't find the balance because Townsville wants the mine, Maryborough wants the mine, Mackay wants the mine, Brisbane doesn't. So yeah. you've got 50-50 of the population kind of going, you know, you cannot make us happy. And that's not a winning formula. And on one Nation, you, you mentioned in there that if LNP ends up governing, it will likely be in a coalition with One Nation. The Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, has said there's no way Labor will form a government with One Nation. Which approach do you think is smarter here? Again, it comes down to that 50-50 split. Mm. So, I mean, the southeast aren't, well, particularly Brisbane, aren't overly enamoured of a lot of One Nation's policies. Uh, there's also a big migrant community in a lot of the outer urban seats uh, that surround Brisbane, like big Muslim communities in like in Logan and Inala and areas like that, which are um, pretty similar to, I suppose, Western Sydney. So they're not overly enamoured of it. But then you go in a regional and they're very supportive of Pauline Hanson. And it's not so much One Nation that they're supportive of it's Pauline Hanson who's not even running in this campaign right and to and today she admitted that she doesn't even know all of her uh all of her representatives names like she she just basically said uh, oh I don't I don't know all their names and I'm not going to apologize for that and she doesn't have to because yeah. people aren't voting for a one nation candidate they're voting for Pauline right. so but the Premier saying I would rather go into opposition than make a deal with One Nation plays really well in half the state. Uh, her, her saying that plays really badly in another half of the state. And One Nation's been trying to use that as like the de deplorables moment, I suppose, by saying that the Premier doesn't value or respect uh, the people who want to vote for One Nation. But it's a problem for the LNP as well. They've admitted that they will, you know, work with the parliament that Queensland delivers. But every time Tim Nichols, who's the leader, has been asked, yes or no, will you work with One Nation to form government? He hasn't been able to answer it. In fact, he was asked on radio the other day, yes or no, will you form government with One Nation? And he said, pass, because nobody, mm. again, Nobody knows how to play that one because you're going to be, you know, annoying 50% of voters no matter what you say. 
And one candidate who Pauline Hanson does know the name of, of course, is Malcolm Roberts in Ipswich. <laughs> How do you think he'll fare? I um, I think Malcolm Roberts has a big fight on his hand to win okay. the seat of Ipswich. Yeah. Yeah, the Labour MP there has got a 16% margin uh, and she's quite popular. And I spent, a, I spent some time out in Ipswich a couple of days ago and there were a lot of people who were kind of like, oh, well, we're voting, we're voting Labour. I mean, he definitely has his supporters, but uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a hard ask. Mm. And you're usually in Canberra, although you're from Queensland, uh, which makes you particularly um, (laughs) a good voice at the moment because this election is getting a lot of play nationally. Looking um, kind of back in Canberra, why do you think this election is getting so much play federally? I think because Queensland decides federal elections and every single time that we've had a federal election it it, Queensland has swung wildly like Queensland has not you know not that many seats when you think about it but it's enough of a population split that you get an idea of how the entire country is feeling because it is the largest decentralized seat uh sorry state so you've got you know, a wide range of views. And so if people are feeling a bit antsy in Queensland, it's probably a good indication that people are feeling antsy across the nation. And you may have noticed that there hasn't been a hell of a lot of federal politicians play a role in the Queensland election because Mm -hmm. Bill, Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull, like they don't, they're not overly popular up here. People are kind of overpopulated politics they're a bit apathetic to the major parties and so they've been keeping the federal politicians in the southeast so uh Turnbull came and he did a he did a walk through one of the inner city seats and Bill Shorten came in the early weeks of the campaign and he went to regional Queensland but he's kind of been you know hidden away since then and that's because Queensland, I think, is betraying the mood of the country at the moment and uh people are just actually fed up Okay. And has there been a defining moment of the campaign so far, do you think? I mean, the veto of the Adani loan is probably one of the defining moments. And then Labor had to reset its campaign halfway through in what they're calling the Maryborough moment, uh, which was basically the Premier surrounded by a bunch of people in high vis because she made the decision to make trains in Maryborough, which is a big deal for Queensland. So right. that's sort of been their defining moment. But I, I think uh, the, the big one that, you know, optically that people are talking about is you've got Labor saying, we will not enter into deals with One Nation. We're totally off it. We're against them. And then you have one of their troublemaking MPs, a woman by the name of Joanne Miller. She's the former police minister who sought Pauline Hanson out when she was in Ipswich recently, gave her some baby booties for Pauline Hanson's new grandson and gave her a big hug in front of the cameras, which kind of really, you know, upset Labor's message that they stand apart from One Nation. So this has been a campaign that's all been about photo ops and not policies, and those images are really starting to matter. Okay. And just finally, Amy, I want to ask you, I know this is a topic that um, you can get quite passionate about. What do you think journalists and politicians outside of Queensland get wrong about the politics in the state? (laughs) I think that uh, everyone remembers what Queensland was like in the 1970s when Mm -hmm. Joe Bjorki-Peterson was leader. And 
Queensland is not like that anymore. It's it's exceptionally diverse. It can be very successful, you know, in terms of integration and acceptance and all of those sort of issues that, like, I mean, take the, like, the marriage equality survey. Like, people were expecting Queensland, a lot of Queensland electorates, to vote no, and they didn't. And that's because Queensland has changed. It has moved on. Mm-hmm. Brisbane is probably a really nice mix of both Sydney and Melbourne. And regional Queensland, we're not talking like redneck yokels here. We're talking like very committed people who are just trying to make their farms or their small businesses work. And I think they get painted with a with a brush that's not overly deserved a lot of the time. So if you haven't been to Queensland or spent time in Queensland recently, uh, I recommend that you do and you actually talk to the people because you'd probably be quite surprised. Okay. Well, Amy, thank you so, so much for filling us in on what's been happening up there. <laughs> thank you. I cannot wait for this to be over, though. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. I like the woman. I like the woman. <laughs> Can't wait to see what happens in Queensland. Now, the Courier Mail are tipping Labor and Anastasia Palaszczuk to win. Everyone's got to remember the magic number is 47. Uh, on two-party preferred, Labor are leading uh, 52 to 48. Today, today is Friday, and um, One Nation's vote has sunk from 18 to 12. But it's all about preferences because, as we've mentioned on podcasts before, that they're changing the preferencing system for the first time. Usually in Queensland, because they've just got this one-house system, you could go in and vote just one you put an one next to whoever you wanted to be your local MP. But now they've got preferencing and who knows what will happen. Now, Lane, we haven't talked about New Zealand for a while. No, we haven't. Um, and I, so I thought we'd run through some of the things that have happened uh, to uh, New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern. She's had a tough few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, her cat died. Hmm. Uh, Paddles. Very Paddles, sad. the cat that could hold a pen. Yeah, with um, his little opposable thumbs. It's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Started a great Twitter account, then died tragic. Mm. Um, now, also, she uh, she came to Australia. She had that kind of confrontation with Malcolm Turnbull where she keeps repeating that New Zealand will will take refugees and uh, and Australia keeps saying no, unfortunately. Um, she also uh, went to APEC and she had a – she got sassed. She got sassed by Donald Trump. Uh, that it was uh, an, an, an interesting election. Um, he made um, he made a side comment that I'd upset a lot of people. <laughs> I think it was in jest over the fact that it was perhaps a surprise win. I can't be sure. I pointed out that no one had marched over my election to office. <laughs> also this week, Jacinda Ardern has decided to join a nationwide secret Santa. Oh, my God. With uh, 3,623 other Kiwis. She tweeted, so you may have noticed, I don't tweet especially often, in brackets, I just lurk. But as a ridiculous lover of Christmas, I couldn't miss the chance to join the New Zealand Secret Santa movement. So how does it work? You sign up for the thing um, and you're randomly assigned a person to buy a gift for. And then you're given their Twitter profile so you can go through and find clues about what would be the perfect (laughs) gift. But they also encourage you to look at people's Facebook, Instagram, Foursquare, Pinterest, and Google them to see if they have any blog. Like, this is full-blown Kiwi stalking. <laughs> so they're like, here's this person's Twitter pro- yeah. profile. Go and stalk them online and then buy them a gift. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. Well, the trick is you can only spend um, you can only spend ten dollars, and they are encouraging people to make gifts. But like the one clause that they've put in is, do not follow the person on Twitter straight away. Yeah. Because that, because they, it's meant to be anonymous. Um, but I mean, how intimidating! Imagine mm. if you sign up to do this secret Santa and you got Jacinda Arden. L- Lane, what would you um, what would you get Jacinda Arden for for her secret Santa? Um, oh, it it would be intimidating, wouldn't it? But also she does seem like someone who would just be kind of like genuinely grateful for whatever gift she received. Um, I'd probably knit her something, to be honest. Maybe a beanie or some gloves. Yeah. I was going to say we could buy some Jats and some cheese. <laughs> we could buy some Jats and cheese. Is that what you would get, Jacinda Arden, for Secret Santa? $10 isn't a lot of money. No, it's not. I was remember when we were having a chat with her and she was talking about... Ugg boots, and I thought you can't buy Ugg boots for ten dollars, though. No, maybe some really no, like really. crappy ones, but not um. Mm. Yeah, no. You know what I've been saying all over my sponsored ads on Facebook. Sorry, I'm just eating a banana. Um, <laughs> all over my sponsored ads on Facebook. Yeah. Are ways that you can transform pictures of your pets into um socks or things, and and right. you know we could do that. We could get her a, we could get her some paddle socks. <laughs> maybe that's too sad. We could do that. Yeah, that's too sad. Oh, yes. Well, that is that is an amazing quirk of New Zealand. Uh, yeah, Malcolm Turnbull hasn't signed up to any Australian secret centres as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah. I mean, Australian Twitter couldn't do secret Santa. Everyone just hates each other. <laughs> like, it's too cooked. It's, yeah, it's, it's too way cooked. too cooked. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's – yeah. But although, although some people have said, oh, isn't it dangerous that she's sending – She's submitted her address. The, the way that the New Zealand one works is mm. it all goes to a central hub and then they send it out. Mm, so, you know, some random person isn't getting Jacinda Arden's street address. That's, <laughs> that's not what's going on here. Okay, good. Um, but, Lane, that is all that we've got time for this week. I want to say big thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray. Nick Ray, uh, Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team at BuzzFeed Australia. Big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash on or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app and leave a rating and a review. We will be back next week live from Parliament House. We will be here together in Parliament House. Uh, Lane, you'll be following the same-sex marriage debate. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll go sit out on the lawns with Bob Catter and hold an impromptu House of Reps. <laughs> on um, the lawns, sitting in a circle. Yeah, Labor can be Labor, he can be the crossbench, and I guess I'll be the whole of the government. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was thinking if they held it on the grass, the fence will get in the way. They've ripped up all of outside parliament mm. to build this fence. Yeah. Even on the roof, they've put up all of this giant scaffolding. So I don't know what is going on up there, but yeah. maybe next week we should go up with a recorder and investigate, although that's probably not allowed. We can record the sounds of the of the, the ripped-up <laughs> lawn. <laughs> Just people crying. Oh, God. Crying while they look at yep. it. Yeah, okay. Democracy is dead. Mm-hmm. The people's house. <clears throat> um, anyway, so I am at Workman Alice on Twitter. She is at Lane Sainty. I am at Lane Sainty. Thanks for all your feedback on last week's episode on the tweets. It was great. And what did people say? Oh, people, I don't know. People just said it was good. I don't want to include that because it sounds conceited. <laughs> um, but, yeah, people were just saying nice things. Um, yeah, good. It's nice to get feedback. Yeah, it is nice to get feedback. We generally read the feedback. If people want to send us feedback, like, I'm sure I'm going to get a thing right now saying, Alice, why are you eating a banana and talking? Yeah, why, why are you eating a banana? <laughs> we're about to finish in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Potassium is really important. Okay. And I can feel my blood sugar dropping. Okay. While you while you finish the final mouthful of your banana. Okay. I'm finished. Alice, Alice, I have a question to ask you. Mm. I surprise you with this question every week. I know that you're never <laughs> expecting it. <laughs> Alice, is it on? Okay, that's a great question. Let's cross now to Andrew Bolt. One Turnbull cabinet minister is a rat. Let's see if we can sniff them out. Who is the rat in the ranks? Lane! Andrew Bolt wrote a column this week saying an unnamed MP was about to quit the Liberal Party and move to the cross bench. No names, no names. But people mm-hmm. have kept coming out saying, well, it's not me. Well, it's not me. Well, it's definitely not me. Although in the Daily Telegraph this week, Sharon Markson did write that she suspects that George Christensen, when Parliament comes back, will just quit the Nationals. He'll just quit. <laughs> um, but <Bye>. not only... <laughs> Do we have an unnamed MP willing to leave the party? But we have also had cabinet leaks this week. So um, mm-hmm. there was a leak out of cabinet and Julie Bishop very quickly jumped up and said, well, it wasn't me and we should have an inquiry, an investigation into who it was. Christopher Pine said, yes, we should have an investigation. And the other um, cabinet members are saying, no, 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 we don't need an investigation. I get the impression they all know who it is. But, every, mm. but no one's saying, they're all just saying, well, we don't talk about cabinet. It's illegal to talk about cabinet. No one talks about cabinet. It's illegal to leak from cabinet. No one's like, we're not leaking. I'm not leaking. What are you leaking? Mm. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but it is worth noting that this stuff is happening because it it, it it paints to a bigger picture. So backbenchers speaking out, cabinet leaks, threats from anonymous MPs, they're all a cheap way to fuel the pressure on the Prime Minister and and show that maybe the party room is a bit more divided and dysfunctional than than we thought. And there's been finger pointing and, and whispers about uh, people potentially building leadership tickets. So if there's a spill, there's rumours there could be a, a Julie Bishop Scott Morrison ticket. Um, but you've got to remember that the last spill strategy was that you spill to an empty seat to destabilise uh, and then you let things deteriorate more. So by the time you call it for the second spill, you can actually roll the person, right? So mm. that, that is one mm. way to do it. But, I mean, l- let's let's think, Lane. Would a change of leader really help right now? Uh, the outcome of Benelong is unknown. There yep. could be many more by-elections uh, next yep. year and there is no evidence that a change would give the coalition a boost. So to move against Turnbull in December would be kind of madness. But, I mean, the positioning is obvious all the same. Like why are these leaks happening? Uh, they're not, they're, 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 you've got to think of the wider motive about why people would leak and who, who, benefits, who benefits from the leaks. Um, and, you know, Dutton and, and Morrison are sizing up to be the next conservative leader. There's a, mm-hmm. a huge write-up of, of Morrison in the telly this week saying how he's been um, resurrected because after – you've got to remember in the in the Turnbull spell when Turnbull became PM, uh, Morrison voted for Abbott but his faction kind of supported Turnbull and he kind of moved quickly to Turnbull became treasurer. So he, he lost a lot of his conservative support. So he's kind of coming out saying – well, I want to appeal to conservatives on religious freedom. I I can prove again that I want to be uh, a good leader. And but you know, Julie Bishop is coming out so strong on leaks. It kind of signals that she's saying, "Hey, hey, I'd be a more stable leader." The Nats are unhappy. They want to dictate terms to their Liberal colleagues, possibly on their leadership. There's just there's just a lot going on. So I'm in Lane. I think it's more on than it has been since Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister. Wow, Alice, that yeah. is a big call. That is yeah, a really I think this is the, this is the most on it's ever been. Yeah, I'm not saying it, it is on. I think it's like we're moving <laughs> okay. towards it being on. I think okay. it would be bad for them to spill in December. I think it's probably bad for yep. them to, still, to spill before the next election. But you I can't seems, stop this freight train. Um, there is blood in the water. 
it seems wild to me that they would spill before same-sex marriage is resolved. Um, just because that has been such a ongoing headache for the government. And it is finally kind of coming to a point where it can be resolved and the government can kind of, you know, like, I suppose, settle in in a way. It it seems wild to me that they would throw all that up in the air just as they're kind of trying to to finish off the year. I mean, who wants to inherit um, that the kind of disaster of the citizenship crisis as leader and and all that sort of thing? The timing is bizarre to me. No one. And that's that's what the Conservatives, I think, are thinking a little bit as Mm. well. You you know, if you're a Conservative, you can push forward this idea idea of a of a Morrison Bishop um, leadership team because you know that yep. it, it's not a good it's li- unlikely to happen and it destabilizes a little and you let you know the the leadership sort itself out at the next election the next election yeah. Lane. the next election <laughs> maybe it's soon. yeah maybe, maybe. It's soon. Jackie Lambie said on 730 that she thinks that there, there will be a new election very soon she's not worried about getting back into the Senate yeah, and Janet Rice also said that on Q&A that she thinks there'll be an election soon. So there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, the crossbenchers and <laughs> not holding back in, in giving their predictions that it's going to happen soon. But, you know, we'll all see, I guess. The crossbenchers, the absolute authority on what's happening in the government. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that's all we've yes. got time for this week. We will be back next week with more on the same-sex marriage debate and more of what is going on from the corridors of power in Parliament mm-hmm. House. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thanks, send guys. Us some tweets. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Send us some tweets. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.